kind of like Pavlov's dogs who start to drool when they hear the bell. Anytime I hear a song that I know a story behind, it's like I kind of have to tell that story. Jesus loves me. You don't know this. That song, there, there were two sisters back in the late 1800s, two single sisters that lived together on an island out in the Hudson River right next to West Point Military Academy. They were both authors, both very successful, published over 100 books between them. The one sister was writing a story, a, a novel about a little boy with a terminal disease and his Sunday school teacher coming to see him very regularly, trying to encourage him. And at some point in the story toward the end, he, uh, the, the author wanted this Sunday school teacher to, to sing a song to the little boy in the storyline. And so she asked her sister to just come up with some words of a song that we could, or just write a poem that we could make this the song that he sang to the little boy as, as he was on his deathbed. And the words that that sister came up with that went into that story were, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The, the whole, in fact, there's a couple stanzas that you never see, unless you go read the original book, that very much apply to that boy right there on his deathbed. So it's an, very interesting how that song became the, the song sung in, all around the world in English-speaking nursery, uh, uh, nurseries and uh, Sunday school, elementary Sunday school, whatever, and in church sometimes. So, well, that's all beside the point. I'm glad to hear that you're doing a Mormon, um, uh, whatever you're calling it, that you're doing Saturday night. We, uh, we at RHMA have uh, three or four different of our missionary families actually working in, in uh, Idaho and Utah and Colorado, uh, not Colorado, but Colorado City, Arizona, among the Mormon community. In fact, what's going on in Colorado City is incredible because if you know this at all in the news that you've heard over the past few years, Colorado City was actually a, a Mormon, a polygamous Mormon community, FLDS, Fundamentalist Latter-day Saints, they were called. And they basically had the government basically stayed out of the way and let them just do their thing. And uh, finally, they stepped in because the leader had like 40 wives and however many kids and wives very young that they finally put him in prison over that. He's, he's actually in a federal prison in Texas now. But we have two missionary couples right there in that town, and incredible things are happening as the doors open up. The real challenge, though, is those, those ex-FLDS people, it's like, I don't want anything to do with the Bible or church or religion. Don't talk to me about it because they've been so tainted by what they've experienced. So come Saturday night, find out more how to, how to share the gospel. Well, some of us at the RHMA home office do a lot of pulpit supply, uh, but by its very nature, we, we seldom preach in the same church twice within a few weeks and almost never two Sundays in a row. Well, when that does happen, I happen to have a two-part series that I like to preach, and it just happens that, Lord willing and you willing, I'm going to be here next Sunday, and so you're going to hear that two-part message. If today was the uh, first Sunday in January, I might preach a message on New Year's resolutions, a little too late for that being the fourth Sunday of April, but it's never too late to make resolutions, and we're going to offer you some today. But before we do that, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews 13.7. We're going to look at a lot of scripture today, so hopefully you'll open your Bibles and follow along with me. Hebrews 13, and look at verse 7. 
In the, in the middle of a list of do's and don'ts here, we find these words, Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The author appears to be speaking of Christian leaders who have died and gone on to heaven. Consider the outcome of their way of life. In other words, they were godly people. They practiced what they preached. They ended well. What are we to do? We're to imitate their faith. The Apostle Paul told the church in Corinth, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I strive to imitate Christ. If you strive to imitate me as I do that, then you too will be an imitator of Christ. In other words, if, if A equals B and B equals C, then A will equal C. And unspoken in that is if and when I fail, don't imitate me, imitate Christ. But, Paul says, I'm going to strive to set the example for you. If you don't already do so, I'd encourage you to read about, read the writings of godly men and women of the past. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. We're actually going to do that these next two Sunday mornings, Lord willing. We're going to remember a man who is considered to be one of the finest theologians, if not the finest, that America has ever produced, and one of the finest in all of church history. And you see his picture there at the bottom of your handout. Jonathan Edwards, let me give you a, uh, just a biographical brief sketch of him to begin with. He was born in Windsor, Connecticut, 1703. That was the same year John Wesley was born over in England. Jonathan Edwards had a strong Puritan heritage. His father was pastor of the local congregational church for 64 years, 64 years. His grandfather pastored a church up in Massachusetts for 60 years. In fact, when Grandpa finally retired, Jonathan succeeded him there. As, as his first pastorate. Jonathan was the fifth child and only son of 11 kids, meaning he had 10 sisters, imagine that. He was homeschooled by his parents and his older sisters. At age 13, he entered Yale University. Yale itself was only 15 at the time. Yale was started specifically to train pastors and others, but specifically pastors. By the time he entered, he already knew Latin and Greek and Hebrew. Graduated four years later as valedictorian at the age of 17. Stayed on a couple more years studying more theology. Later returned to get a master's degree after he had a brief pastorate up in New York City. Well, Edwards went on to pastor churches in New England for the next 30 years, and through his preaching and that of George Whitfield, remember the Englishman George Whitfield, between the preaching of Edwards and Whitfield, God used that for the, great, the first great awakening that swept through New England back in the mid-1700s. So we're going to share a little more about him next time, including his untimely and unusual death. When he was only 19 to 20 years old, first starting out in ministry, over a year's time or so, he wrote a list of 70 resolutions by which he wanted to live his life, kind of a list of New Year's resolutions. He headed the list of resolutions with this statement, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will. And then he says this, remember to read over these resolutions once a week. He was making a long-term commitment. As far as we know, he held to it the rest of his life. Though he did, he did make some adjustments in his thinking along the way. He decided he was trying a little too hard on his own. Yeah, he was ignoring his own heading at the top, that he needed to be more dependent 
totally dependent on the Lord as he pursued this life of holiness. He couldn't do it without God's help. The Apostle Paul actually speaks uh, to this very thing. The last verse of Colossians 1, Paul says this, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I toil with God's energy. Well, we're going to look at just a handful of these 70 resolutions this week and next. Some deal with his walk with the Lord. Some deal with his relationships toward others. Remember the teacher of the Jewish law who came to Jesus one day and asked him which of the Old Testament laws was the most important. Bible scholars tell us there were 613 laws for, for Christ to choose from. What was Christ's reply to that teacher? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And then Jesus said this, the second most, the second most important commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Next week, we're going to look at some resolutions that fit the first and great commandment. Today, we're going to look at resolutions that fit the second category. Loving others as you love yourself. Normal people love themselves, even when they say they don't. Typically, when people say they hate themselves, it's because they hate something about themselves because they love themselves, if you get what I see there. We feed and care for our bodies. We give, we give ourselves what we want. But what's it look like when we love others the same way we love ourselves? Let me just throw in two definitions before we go any further. First, the word love itself. This is the biblical agape, 1 Corinthians 13, love that we often hear about. It can be defined as self-sacrifice for the benefit of the one loved. Self-sacrifice for the benefit of the one loved. John 3.16, God so loved, so self-sacrificed that what did he do? He gave his one and only son. Ephesians 5.2, Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a self-sacrifice. Then the other definition would be that of neighbor. What's the definition of neighbor? Well, Christ told the parable of the Good Samaritan specifically to answer that question, who is my neighbor? And the clear answer to that question out of that parable was what? Your neighbor is anyone you see in need that you can help, whether they live next door or around the world, whether they're your friend or your enemy. The Samaritan and Jews were not friends at all by any means. So truly loving our neighbor, loving others, means sacrificing ourselves for their benefit, whatever that might look like in any given situation. All right, with all that as a background, take your Bibles and go to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. The setting here is just before the end of the Jewish exile in Babylon. Daniel has gotten hold of Jeremiah's prophecy that the captivity would last 70 years. He knew that those 70 years were coming to an end. You may recall that Daniel was probably just a teenager when he was taken into captivity, so that would make him somewhere in his mid-80s by now. And he prays in the light of this 70-year captivity coming to an end, beginning with verse 3 of chapter 9. Daniel 9, verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, and remember these next words because we're going to see the exact same thing in just a few minutes. O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, verse 5, 
We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. And in the next ten verses or so, Daniel continues to confess the sins of the people that put them into captivity in the first place. And though he himself was an unknown child at the time they were committed, he associates himself with the sins of his people 32 times in these 16 verses, the 16-verse prayer. We have sinned. We have rebelled. We have not obeyed. Now, turn back to Ezra. Ezra chapter 9. And even though we're turning back here a dozen books in our Old Testament, we're actually moving forward about 75 years as you... As you probably know, the books of the Old Testament aren't always in chronological order. The book of Ezra, of course, talks about the Jews returning to Israel from that 70-year captivity in Babylon, and they're, they're struggling to get Solomon's temple rebuilt. Ezra himself doesn't show up until chapter 7, about 75, 80 years after Zerubbabel came with the first group back in chapter 2. But by the time we get here to chapter 9, Ezra's been in Jerusalem for several months now, and he's just receiving word from the leaders that there's a major problem of mixed marriages among the returned exiles. They are intermarrying with pagans, with idol worshipers in the land. Now, this was something God had expressly forbidden a thousand years earlier in the law of Moses on the grounds that those pagans would turn the Israelites away from following God and toward idol worship. Look at the first two verses here of chapter 9, Ezra 9. After these things had been done, the officials approached me, Ezra, and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. Unfortunately, the leaders were taking the lead in this abomination. Well, what says the response to the news? Well, let's keep reading and hang on as I go with this. As soon as I heard, verse 3, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, pulled the hair from my head and beard, sat appalled, all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment, my cloak torn. I fell upon my knees, spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to the days we have been in, to this day, we have been in great guilt. For our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the swords, to captivity, to plundering, to utter shame, as it is today. Go on to verse 13. And after all this has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant of this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Down to the end of verse 15. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. What was Ezra's response when his fellow Jews commit a flagrant sin. 
verse 15, we are before you in our guilt. We, not they, we. Ezra just arrived in Jerusalem. He wasn't negligent in rebuilding the temple. He hadn't married pagan wives. And yet he says, we are guilty. Well, let's move ahead 10 years by just turning a page or two in your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah was the one responsible for getting the walls rebuilt around Jerusalem. Ezra the temple, Nehemiah the walls. This was a very important step in getting Jerusalem back to becoming an autonomous, protected city. Let's start reading in chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the capital. That'd be the capital of Persia that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are destroyed by fire. Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, verse 5, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. The exact words we hear Daniel say a hundred years before that in his prayer. Going on to verse 6. Let your ear be attentive, your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night and the people of Israel for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. What was Nehemiah's response? Not just to the trouble and shame of the returned exiles in Jerusalem, but to the sins of the people that had caused the captivity in the first place. Verse 6, we have sinned against you. We, not they, we, even I, he says. Question, how do I react when a, a high-profile Christian, a national figure, an international figure, commits a flagrant sin. How do I react when a fellow Christian right here in the Tri-County area commits a flagrant sin? Well, based on these verses, I think it's obvious how a Daniel, an Ezra, a Nehemiah would react. Let's look at what Jonathan Edwards would have done, or at least resolved to do. The first resolution on your handout, number eight. Resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I, and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. Let's take that apart a little bit to see if we can grasp the full force of it. Resolve to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, not just the things I may say directly to the offender, but what I may say about the offender to other people, which is the more likely scenario for most of us. And not just what I might say, but what I might do in sharing the news, which often results in gossiping. Or better, what I might say or do in trying to appropriately address the situation. In any of those circumstances, to act how? Next phrase as if nobody had been so vile as I, and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others. In other words, I'm just as capable of those sins as the person who committed them, and God help me if I don't believe that. Next line, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote, promote what? 
tsk, tsk, did you hear what so-and-so did? No. Instead, may their failings promote nothing but shame and myself, prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God, as did Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah. To us belongs open shame, Daniel said. And incidentally, in each of those three cases, significant things happened as a result of those prayers. For Daniel, he was visited by the angel Gabriel, who brought him insight and understanding to one of those seemingly incomprehensible visions that were making him physically sick. They were so unusual. Ezra organized and completed the building of the temple. Nehemiah got the walls rebuilt around Jerusalem. Let me remind you of a few other verses without taking time to look them up. Romans 12.3, Paul says, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. What did Paul think about himself after 25 years after his conversion, one who we'd consider a giant of the faith? 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, foremost. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said he was not worthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because he persecuted the church. Ephesians 3, he considered himself the very least of all the saints. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Not only that, but Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It doesn't delight in evil, but instead rejoices with the truth. In other words, don't, don't take pleasure when someone falls into sin. And I think we need to take particular care for that when it's a fellow believer we don't particularly like. That's not exhibiting the agape love of 1 Corinthians 13. When they commit a flagrant sin, should we, take pleasure? we shouldn't take pleasure in such things. And that doesn't mean that we overlook the sin, that we trivialize the gravity of it. Rather, we're reminded of how capable we are of such sin. And, and if we're in a position to confront and restore someone who's fallen, we keep Galatians 6.1 before us. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Well, let's move on to the next resolution, which is kind of related. Number 36, resolve never to speak evil of any, except I have some particular good call for it. Resolve never to speak evil of any, except, and we need to pause right there, because Titus 3.2 clearly commands us to speak evil of no one. There's a dozen other verses that would concur. Now, what right does Jonathan Edwards have to make an exception here? Well, I suggest the answer might be found by going back to Noah Webster's 1828 dictionary, where we find that the adverb evil in the phrase speak evil was contracted to ill. In other words, speak ill of someone, speak unkind, speak with displeasure. I would suggest that Jonathan Edwards is saying he would not speak with displeasure to or about someone except when there's a particular reason to do so. When would that be? Well, let me give you some biblical examples of when ill-speaking, speaking with displeasure, was called for. Go back with me all the way to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32. Moses was up on Mount Sinai with God for 40 days, receiving the Ten Commandments, the rest of the law. What happens down below the mountain? The children of Israel, they get impatient. They demand Aaron to make an idol. So he molds this golden calf. We'll look at verse 7 of chapter 32. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a golden calf. They've worshipped it and sacrificed it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people. Behold, it is a stiff 
stiff-necked people. These people have corrupted themselves. They are stiff-necked. They are obstinate. They are a stubborn people. God speaks ill of the children of Israel. Go over to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is where we have Nathan the prophet confronting King David for his sins of adultery and murder. He tells him a parable. Remember this? He tells a parable about a, a rich man exploiting a poor man. And David responds by saying, that rich man deserves to die. And Nathan responds, verse 7, you, David, are that man. Look at verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Get on to verse 11. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Nathan and the Lord speak ill of David. Go back to Nehemiah again. This time chapter 13. Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah discovers at this point that the problem that Ezra had to deal with 25 years earlier had reared its ugly head once again, and many of the returned Jews had intermarried with the pagans of the land. Well, look at Nehemiah's response, and, and be glad you weren't one of them. Go to verse 25. I confronted them. Nehemiah's talking. I confronted them. I cursed them. I beat some of them. I pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was beloved by his God. God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Verse 28, And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. You remember who Sanballat was? The, the pagan Sanballat and Tobiah, those two men were major thorns in the flesh of the returned exiles all through the book of Nehemiah. And things had gotten so corrupted that the grandson of the Jewish high priest had actually married Sanballat's daughter. That's how bad things had gotten. Look at Nehemiah's response to that news back in verse 28. Therefore I chased him from me. Get out of here. Nehemiah speaks ill of the compromised Jews, the priests in particular. Move on to the New Testament. Go to Matthew 16. Matthew 16. Jesus here is telling his disciples, the 12, that he's soon going to suffer and be killed. And good old Peter is going to come in and save the day. Matthew 16. Look at verse 22. Peter took him aside, took Jesus aside, and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Satan, you are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus calls Peter Satan. That qualifies speaking ill of someone? I think so. Go on, one more. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Starting in verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, his stepmother. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. 
when you were assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Paul speaks ill, not only of the man who was living in sin, but of the church in Corinth for not dealing with that sexual immorality within their congregation. And notice that all these examples are within the family. God to his chosen people, Nathan to his king, Nehemiah to his fellow Israelites returned from the exile, Jesus to one of his disciples, Paul to the church in Corinth, his spiritual children. And of course, we could give examples of speaking ill of those outside the family. The Old Testament prophets provide plenty of those examples, not to mention Christ speaking of and to the Pharisees. But let's not lose sight of the whole purpose of this resolution never to speak ill of any, except I have some particular good call for it. And when that call comes, when someone sins and it's our duty to address it, we need to keep this in balance with the first resolution. Let the knowledge of that person's failings promote nothing but shame in myself. And don't forget Galatians 6.1, when you confront a fellow believer, keep watch, lest you too be tempted. Well, let's move on to the last resolution for today. And for this, we're going to head off in a whole different direction, though still within the general theme of loving your neighbors yourself. Look at Resolution 13. Resolved to be endeavoring to find out fit objects of charity and liberality. I went back to the 1828 Webster Dictionary to see if I could figure out what kind of a distinction Jonathan Edwards was making here between charity and liberality, because we might see them as being synonymous here. Well, Webster defines charity as a free service to bring relief, a free service to bring relief. In other words, uh, a doctor, a plumber, an accountant, a mechanic, a cook, you name it, most any of us would have a skill or service that we could offer at no charge to benefit a truly needy person. So we would see that as charity. And the word liberality, actually the first uh, definition Webster gives is an act of generosity, which would indicate it could be a synonym of charity. But then a second definition is a donation, which would appear to be speaking specifically of money. So let's assume that Jonathan Edwards was on the lookout for opportunities to help the poor, whether giving number one of his time and talent or number two of his money, or, or maybe both together. As you probably know, the poor are objects of God's special concern. There are hundreds of verses in the Bible that talk about it, thousands of verses depending on how you define talking about it. It begins all the way back in the Mosaic Law, Exodus 22, where the children of Israel are instructed to not charge interest when they make a loan to a poor person. Go with me to Deuteronomy 15. Deuteronomy 15. Look at verse 11. Deuteronomy 15, 11. There will never cease to be poor among you in the land. Remember Christ reiterated that to his disciples. He said, the poor you will always have with you. But look at the rest of verse 11. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in your land. What a, what a beautiful word picture. What a convicting word picture. A hand open wide to the poor. Does that, does that describe you and me? There's actually a promise associated with it. Look back at verse 10. 
You shall give to him freely. Your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. And because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Remember the Apostle Paul telling the uh, church in Galatia that when he had to go to Jerusalem at the beginning of his ministry to get their approval of his mission work to the Gentiles, not the Jews, but to the Gentiles, he says he went to the church pillars, James, Peter, and John, and Paul says they gave their approval, they extended the right hand of fellowship. If you don't know that, those two phrases, pillars of the church, right hand of fellowship, come right there out of Galatians 2. And then Paul said they asked only one thing from me. What was it? Remember the poor. Remember the poor. To which Paul adds, the very thing I was eager to do. No problem for Paul. Apparently it was a part of his DNA. Remember the poor. I mean, those words to Paul beg the question of you and me, how much do we remember the poor? You know, what, what is there in our lifestyle, our routine, our spending habits, our giving habits, our relationships that indicate we remember the poor? In the words of Jonathan Edwards, do we endeavor to find objects of charity and liberality, needy persons, needy places in which to invest some of our time and our talent and our money? Or do we leave that to the uh, Peoria Rescue Mission, Southside Mission, Samaritan's Purse, Food for the Hungry, not that those organizations aren't worthy of our support, but does sending them a few dollars, or, or a lot of dollars, fulfill my obligation? Does that act alone qualify for remembering the poor? I'm probably about as uh, right-wing as you can get when it comes to politics, and probably most of us here, and undoubtedly most of the evangelical church in America, uh, would identify with the conservative movement in our country when it comes to social issues like abortion, homosexuality. But you know, there's another social issue out there where we failed miserably, at least in the public perce perception, and that's the issue of poverty. Almost any poll you see shows that most Americans believe that it's the same people who are liberal on abortion, homosexuality, who genuinely care for the poor. And I realize that's not fair. It's not hard to argue that the liberal agenda has done nothing over the past 50 years to solve the problem, despite 22 trillion tax dollars spent on it. But the problem is, perception is reality. And the perception is that we aren't the ones who care. They're the ones who really care. And I would dare suggest that a lot of Christians don't care. You know, we're living the good life, we're living the American dream, and you know, if those poor people would work harder, they could be too. And not only that, I'm paying my taxes to fund all their welfare programs. But I'd be willing to bet that if all the 90 million or so of us who profess to be evangelical believers here in America, if we would resolve to be endeavoring to find fit objects of charity and liberality, we could probably reverse that perception. Turn with me to one last passage, 1 John chapter 3. Not the Gospel of John, but 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. Look at verse 17. 1 John 3, verse 17. If anyone, speaking to us believers, if anyone has this world's goods, and I would say that includes everybody here in this room, we have this world's goods, and we see a brother in need, and yet close our heart against him, how does God's love abide in us? Little children, let's not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. A closed heart. What a, what a contrast to the open hand of Deuteronomy 15. 
we can summarize what the Apostle John is saying here with the words, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. What am I doing as an individual? What are we doing as, a, as families? What are we doing as a church family to show an open hand, an open hand that dispels any accusation of a closed heart? The second most important commandment is to love your neighbors yourself. And as we conclude this morning, if, if you're wondering how well you're doing at that, I, I would suggest three questions you can ask to help test yourself. And there's probably 3,000 other questions you can ask as well. But three questions based on our three resolutions here. Question one, how do I react when a brother or sister in Christ falls into sin? Question two, do I speak ill of others only when called for? And question three, do I endeavor to find opportunities to show I truly care for the poor? The second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Lord, we know that it's normally very easy for a person to love himself, a whole lot easier than loving someone else. Show us something from these resolutions, from your word, or maybe some area we haven't even talked about yet today. Something that we can resolve to do this week, this day, that will help us love our neighbor as ourself, thus fulfilling the second greatest commandment. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.